Good morning, Littleton Christian Church. Nice to see you guys. Um, this morning we are finishing the short series we've done on a handful of psalms. We looked at seven psalms to start this year, and each of these psalms shared a common word, a common prayer. Each one at some point in some context prayed that the Lord would be our shelter, that we would find shelter and refuge in the Lord. And the reason that we picked those particular psalms is because the very last command that Jesus gives to his people in the Gospel of Matthew is remember, I am with you always to the end of the age. So we turned to the Psalms to learn together how to remember that he is with us. And the last Psalm we're going to look at, we've looked at six Psalms of David. And this last one is a Psalm written by someone else, by a guy named Asaph. We don't know much about Asaph aside from Asaph was hired by David to work in the temple. His, his title was probably choir master. Um, the, the scriptures tell us David hired a thousand musicians to orchestrate worship in the temple courts. David was a worshiper. He loved music. He hired a staff of a thousand. Wow, um, that's great. And Asaph was probably uh, one of the leaders of that group. And so there's a handful of psalms in the Psalms that are from him. Uh, the thing that I want to say about this Psalm before we read it, it's Psalm 73, is uh, the Psalms of David, especially where he's asking for shelter, uh, can be a bit of a stretch to relate to. Uh, some of you have experienced situations in your life, uh, whether it's um, through some other cause of violence, maybe you're a combat veteran, where you understand literally asking for protection from physical danger. And that's what David is often asking for shelter from. Uh, Asaph, well, he's, you know, he worked in the temple he, with a thousand other people. He, he uh, was probably the closest thing someone living in Jerusalem at that time could be to a a white-collar, South Metro Denver worker. And I find when I read Asaph's prayer that I can relate to it a lot more easily than David's. In fact, I, I wrestled as I tried to write a sermon on this psalm this week because the, the scriptures at times, they speak for themselves in such a way that as the teacher, I feel like, I'm only going to take away from it by sharing about it. Nevertheless, I will say some words and hopefully not take away too much. So let's prepare our hearts and minds and let's turn to Psalm 73. Asaph writes, Certainly God is good to Israel and to those whose motives are pure. But as for me, my feet almost slipped. My feet almost slid out from under me, for I envied those who are proud as I observed the prosperity of the wicked. For they suffer no pain. Their bodies are strong and well-fed. They are immune to the trouble common to men. They do not suffer as other men do. Arrogance is their necklace, and violence covers them like clothing. 
Their prosperity causes them to do wrong. Their thoughts are sinful. They mock and say evil things. They proudly threaten violence. They speak as if they rule in heaven and lay claim to the earth. Therefore, they have more than enough food to eat and even suck up the water of the sea. They say, how does God know what we do? Is the most high aware of what goes on? Well, take a good look. This is what the wicked are like. Those who always have it so easy and get richer and richer. I concluded, surely in vain I've kept my motives pure and maintained a pure lifestyle. I suffer all day long and am punished every morning. If I had publicized these thoughts, I would have betrayed your people. When I tried to make sense of this, it was troubling to me. Then I entered the precincts of God's temple and understood the destiny of the wicked. Surely you put them in slippery places. You bring them down to ruin. How desolate they become in in a mere moment. Terrifying judgment makes their demise complete. They are like a dream after one wakes up. O Lord, when you awake, you will despise them. Yes, my spirit was bitter, and my insides felt sharp pain. I was ignorant and lacked insight. I was as senseless as an animal before you. But I am continually with you. You hold my right hand. You guide me by your wise advice. And then you will lead me to a position of honor. Whom do I have in heaven but you? On earth there is no one I desire but you. My flesh and my heart may grow weak, but God always protects my heart and gives me stability. Yes, look, those far from you die. You destroy everyone who is unfaithful to you. But as for me, God's presence is all I need. I have made the sovereign Lord my shelter as I declare all the things you have done. This is the word of the Lord. Lord, in this moment, as we are quiet before you, would you speak to us about your word, through your word? Lord, we ask, like your disciples, teach us to pray. We ask that you give us ears to hear, hearts to understand, eyes to see. Transform us, Lord, in the preaching of the word. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. So, uh, as I said, David, David often prayed when his life was at risk. He, he literally needed protection from some threat. There were people chasing him. He's on the run from Saul. He's on the run from Absalom. He's on the run from, uh, from Philistine armies. He's constantly on the run. And so it makes sense that he would often say, Lord, be my shelter. I seek shelter in you. I take refuge in you. And 
Yeah, when things are difficult, threatening in our life, we do long for shelter. We seek shelter, and that's a, that's a time that it would make sense. But I think there's something here in Asaph's prayer that tells us more about why we often struggle to find shelter in God than David's circumstances. I think the primary reason we struggle to find shelter in God is not that our threats are piling up, not that life is hard. It's that deep down, we are seeking other shelters. That's the primary reason we struggle. The simple fact is that the most significant challenge when it comes to whether or not we find true shelter in the presence of God is not a matter of technique. It's not a matter of not knowing how to find shelter in God. It's a matter of desire. I want something else more than him. The reason I don't run to God for shelter is because I believe I can find it more easily somewhere else. In case you're wondering, the Bible has a word for that. It's called idolatry, and it's common to all of us. Sorry to accuse. It's very common to me. Asaph's prayer in Psalm 73 is a confession. The the first half, at least, the first 15, 16 verses are a confession. He has allowed his heart to play the market. He's he's gone out in search of something better. He has questioned his commitment to God. And, And here's what happens when we do that. When we go searching for something else, something easier, we compare. We immediately look around and evaluate what other people have, how their shelter or their life is working out, and how they got it. And the more Asaph considers what other people have, the more discouraging it becomes to him. These people have so much. They have immunity. They are safe. And yet they are corrupt, foolish. They're violent. They may seem nice enough if they don't feel threatened, but they will go to extreme measures to protect what they have, to protect their fortune, to protect the thing that makes them feel safe. Asaph looks at them and feels the thing that many of us are likely to feel when we play the shelter market, when we go shopping for shelters. Our hearts take respite in a temporary shelter that we build ourselves, and it's called envy. Asaph says, my feet almost slipped. Why did his feet slip? Because he's looking around at what these other people have, and he wants it. These powerful people, maybe they're rich, maybe they have reputation, maybe they have high positions, they seem to do whatever they want with immunity. In fact, whatever they do, whatever they're talking about, he's like, people listen to them, they respect them, they they let them get away with everything, and worst of all, God seems unaware of it. It's like these people can do what they want with no consequences. And 
And even though it's clear in the psalm, Asaph is kind of looking back at his time of envy and he's, he's evaluating it and he knows it's not good, there's also something clear in his confession. He wants to see what it's like to have that kind of power without consequences. To have power, in other words, without relationship. Jesus talked about this power in the Gospels. He, uh, he said in, in a very famous teaching that no one can serve two masters. You cannot serve God and, what's the end of that? Well, money is how it's often translated. But Jesus gives it a name in the Gospels. He gives this, this thing that we translate money, the name of a spiritual entity, a spiritual force called mammon. Mammon isn't just money, it's a power. Um, if, if I ever talk books with you, you'll know that my favorite author is Andy Crouch. Uh, he's only written four books, but they're all worth reading. They're all so good. And uh, his newest book is called The Life We're Looking For. And he's trying to understand the role of mammon in our world right now. And, and here's what he says. He says, mammon is not simply money, but the anti-God impetus that finds its power in money. The allure of money, he goes on to say, is that it allows us to get things done often by means of other persons without the entanglements of friendship. That's the allure of money. Look, we've been, you know, re redecorating all these rooms in the hallway. You should check it out. And, um, and there's been a lot of tasks, building furniture and painting walls and, you know, one, one wall because we had a paint situation is only half painted. And it's so tempting to just do the easy thing, hire it out, you know, just get it done. Instead of having to ask someone, since I'm such a terrible painter, for help. By the way, I'm subtly asking for help at this moment. <laughs> if you like to paint, I have got an opportunity for you. <clears throat> Money allows us to get things done without the entanglements of friendship. This is abundance without dependence. If that's not the American dream, I don't know what is. What mammon wants, above all, is to separate power from relationship, abundance from dependence, and being from personhood. We cannot serve the true God and mammon, this is Crouch, not me, ultimately, because their aims are precisely opposed to each other. God wishes to put all things into the service of persons and ultimately to bring forth the flourishing of creation through the flourishing of persons. Mammon wants to put all persons into the service of things and ultimately to bring about the exploitation of all creation. And that seems bad. That's my uh, analysis of that statement. That seems bad. And yet, it sounds so great, too, to be able to get things done with no effort at all. It's the thing that keeps us coming back to mammon. It's the thing that makes us look at those people with all sorts of power. The people who can just say a word and things get done. I mean, 
Mammon lures us in because it says, you're the boss. You're the boss. Asaph doesn't merely want what these people that he's observing have. He thinks they shouldn't have it. He thinks they shouldn't have it. And, and, and that's called envy, all right? Coveting is, is when you want what someone else has. Envy is when you go one step beyond coveting, and you're like, I just want you not to have it. You don't deserve it. I would be happy if you had not that. That would be better for me. Let, look at what everything he says about these people. They're wicked. They're fools. Arrogance is their necklace. Uh, violence is their clothing. They do wrong. They think wrong. They speak wrong. They think they're God. And it's subtly implying in this prayer, Asaph is saying, but if I had what they have, I would use it right. I would use it right. Uh, when I was a teenager, uh, some of you know, I used all of my free time to try to play basketball. And, uh, and you know, I became tall in middle school and was quite tall through all that time. And I know there's a few tall people here. And so, tall guys, you know this conversation that happened. You'd be playing with, you know, other guys your age and... Most of them would be shorter than you. And at some point, you know, one of the guys would say, if I was as tall as you, I would dunk it every time. <laughs> uh, it's hard to respond to that because they're basically saying, you are a waste of physique. <laughs> how, what, how pathetic, you know. This is such an easy and horrific mindset, and not with height, but in other ways. I, I, I know this feeling so well. Uh, in, in leadership contexts, we talk about, you know, the first chair, that's kind of the, the leader who's responsible for something, and then the second chair. And, and in plenty of times, you know, on boards and in other places, I've found myself effectively in the second chair, and I just savor the thoughts of how much better I could lead whatever this thing is than the person who's in the first chair. And then often they get tired of me complaining and they let me try and I do it worse than they were doing. It's so easy to be critical from the second chair. But Asaph's prideful envy, it doesn't just turn against those people. Eventually, it turns against God. In the message translation of this psalm, Eugene Peterson translates one, one of his complaints as, where is God? Is he out to lunch? No one's tending the shop. You may have uh, heard of the Nobel Prizes. <laughs> I hope so. Um, but you probably have not heard of another set of prizes that have been around since 1991, 10 prizes given out every year. They're the Ig Nobel Prizes. Oh, somebody whispered yes. Oh, Michelle, all right. One person knows what I'm talking about. That's great. 
Um, so last year in 2022, oh, what, what are the Ig Nobel Prizes? Let me tell you. Um, these are sort of in the tradition of the Nobel Prizes. There might be something for literature, something for uh, scientific research, something for economics. And they're usually for impressive things, but they, they all have to come through a certain format. It has to have made people laugh before it made them think, basically. And so last year, three Italian researchers won the Ig Nobel Prize in economics. And I, I learned about this on an, an interview on the radio, but they wrote an article in World Scientific in which they, they effectively mathematically prove that the single biggest factor in material success when somebody becomes professionally very successful and powerful, the single biggest factor is not skill, it's not talent, it's not great discipline and hard work. They prove mathematically that the single biggest factor is luck. Luck. They show that it, it seems to be random circumstances. In their words, in particular, our simple agent-based model shows that if it is true that some degree of talent is necessary to be successful in life, almost never the most talented people reach the highest peaks of success, being overtaken by averagely talented but sensibly luckier individuals. Come on. Um, people of faith, you know, we, we don't like luck. We don't like talking about luck. You know, it's always uncomfortable when you say good luck to someone who's super spiritual, um, you know. Uh, and, but they're right. You know, we conceive of a universe that is orchestrated by a sovereign God that is planned and govern, governed and provided for by an all-wise, all-knowing, all-powerful creator. And if that's the case, the findings of these scholars is perhaps even more troubling. What? These are the people you're choosing to be at the top of the ladder? Like Asaph, we may look at those who rise to the upper echelons of power and privilege and say, is God out to lunch? What's going on here? Here's what Asaph learns. God isn't out to lunch, but God is not interested in setting up a booth in the shelter market. He's not competing for your business. That, that's, that's not the game he's playing. He's not presenting himself as a better deal. You see, this psalm is not merely about envy. It's not merely a meditation on how much it stinks that those people have what they have. What a disservice we would do if we only looked at that part. This psalm describes the path out, the freedom from those other shelters. This is deliverance from the pride and bitterness and anger that ensnare us when we play the shelter market and what we discover when we see those things for what they are. This is not a tragic story of jealousy. This is a lament of it and a hopeful freedom on the other side. The question is, how? How? And this psalm is a stunning example of embarrassing, specific, detailed confession. In fact, in the middle of the psalm, Asaph says, if I had publicized these thoughts, I would have betrayed your people. 
but guess what? We're reading them. So he did publicize them eventually. I mean, that, that was his job. He's writing hymns effectively for the people to sing. And he's taking his private journal, the one he hopes nobody finds, the one he keeps in the locked drawer, and he realizes this is what we need. Asaph had felt the deep pain of his own envy. It was destroying him like gangrene in his soul. But this prayer is looking back on that and understanding it. He publishes these thoughts ultimately, even though they're embarrassing, because they are liberating. Their power is broken when he articulates them. Here's what I'm saying. We've we've said throughout this series, these psalms are best not just studied, but used, right? You, you, we, we want to do what these psalms are doing. And if we do what Asaph is doing, here's what we will be doing. We will be detailing before God the specific cause and details of whatever our source of shame or bitterness or anger is. We will be explaining it in gruesome, embarrassing detail. And until we do that... I don't think we can be free of those things. I don't think we can. We won't experience true liberty because here's what happens. If you keep the, you know, maybe there's a certain longing, a certain fantasy that if somebody found out about, it would be so embarrassing to you. It, 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 would, it would hurt your marriage or destroy your career or, or, or you know, your friends couldn't believe that you thought that way, whatever. Um, if, if there's that thing, it, you might pray some generic prayers about it. You know, we pray these prayers and you hope God knows what you mean. And he does. But until we go into detail about it, I think we are believing a whisper in our ear that says, if you let this out, you will be rejected. If somebody finds out that you think this way, that you want that, that you've looked at that, that, that you've gone to that place, that you purchased that, that whatever, you will be alone. And while we surrender to that voice and keep that completely locked up, those things continue to control us. As a matter of fact, when I examine the, this process in my own life, I think partly I keep them in because I'm embarrassed and partly I keep them in because I know I might delight in them a little bit later. I know I might go back. But what Asaph does here is he lays it out in embarrassing detail, detail that he knows might betray God's people. Here's the good news. I have personally and profoundly experienced the exact opposite of that rejection when I've gone through this process. In the light, those desires when described specifically and in detail, they dissolve. The mold dries up. The urge is shown to be a trap, not life. God knew those things were there, but until that moment, I was keeping them from him for the fear 
and perhaps future indulgence that I was surrendered to. In his patience and in his wisdom and in his love for us, he waits for us to bring those things to him. And friends, if you want to experience the presence of God, that is, I mean, I can't guarantee. He's not a program, but I think he floods in in those places, in those times. This reminds me of a scene in the Gospels. Uh, It's a a fairly famous scene, and it involves somebody who others were jealous of. It's the story of the rich young ruler, the rich young man. It's this this guy who's who's a good guy, who's wealthy, and he's he's obeying, trying to you know do the right things. And he comes to Jesus and asks, "What must I do to inherit eternal life?" And and you may know the story, but Jesus says, "Obey the commands." Yeah, I already do. And 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 the end of the story is. Jesus says, well, one thing you still lack, you know, sell everything you own, give it to the poor, and follow me. And, and it's a tragic story. The guy leaves sad about that because he's wealthy. It's a huge loss. And we know the first part and the last part of the story, but, and the story's told in, in Matthew, Mark, and Luke, but only Mark, who usually leaves out details, includes a critical detail in the very middle of the story. The man asks, what should he do? He says he's trying to do all the right things. Jesus acknowledges. And in Mark 10, 21, as Jesus looked at him, he felt love for him and said, you lack one thing. The life and ministry of Jesus Christ is perhaps a rebuke to those who have found shelter in other places, especially in wealth and religious authority. I mean, those are the, those are the two groups he picks on the most, you know, the wealthy and the pastors. <laughs> um, we find shelter in kind of the power and privilege that we enjoy here, especially in Littleton in 2023. Um, that was a joke. but even though he may be rebuking those desires, he's not actually rebuking them. He's loving them and inviting them to find shelter in him. Jesus didn't come for the healthy, but for the sick. He's calling us to his shelter. The Father delights not in the arrogance of the religious, but the repentance of sinners. What is the gift of Asaph's prayer? It's so rough to read it out loud, but it sets a model for us to follow. This is how we enter the precincts of the temple. Outside the physical temple, you know, in in Asaph's day, there were ceremonial baths, and you would Go dip yourself in the water to to be pure in order to enter into God's presence. Well, Asaph is, is previewing the true ceremonial bath. It's called confession. It's what we practice every Sunday here. Where, where we acknowledge that God in his mercy has given us a way to bring our brokenness before him. And when he enters into the precincts of the temple, his vision completely changes. These people who seem to have power without immunity are actually clinging to things that are so temporary, they're practically vapor. They're vanities. He sees worldly riches and power 
for what they are. In God's presence, we sort out the temporary from the eternal. He does that for us. He shows us what fades and what lasts. In verse 20, it's, it's stunning. He, Asaph is still looking at those who've given their lives to these things. And he says, they become like a dream after one wakes up. The dream feels so real when you're in it. And then you enter back into the real world. This, uh, this of course, draws my mind to the, the great imagery in C.S. Lewis's book, The Great Divorce, where, you know, it's this tale of this group of people who live in hell and a tour bus comes and gives them a tour of heaven. And they, they climb on the bus and they take the tour of heaven and as they first get out of the bus in a place that they thought would be sort of ethereal and weird and, you know, angel babies and all the rest, they, they, get, they put their feet out into this, this um, field of grass and they discover that it was not the grass, it's not heaven that was ethereal, it's them. The, the, the grass pokes through their feet as if they were made of mist. What they find is that the stuff that they were clinging to is what's temporary, what's disappearing. Even in his worship, Asaph considers his envy again. Look, those far from you die. How you, you destroy everyone who is unfaithful to you. The question is, how? How does God do that? It's not that he's punishing them. It's that he's letting them have what they chose. They've bound their lives to decay. And they've become what they worship. If you think back to what Andy Crouch said, they've given their lives to a deity who longs for the exploitation of creation. And that includes themselves. They've sought after a power that exists without relationship, and that's exactly what they've received. The gift at the end of Psalm 73 is that Asaph remembers relationship. That is a whole different thing. It's a relationship that is vulnerable. He comes in not as the powerful one, not with immunity, but he comes in weak and dependent. And he finds what his wandering heart has been looking for. There's this great refrain. We don't quite get it in the English. It's in verses 22, 23, and 24. There's this simple Hebrew phrase that's repeated again and again. It's the phrase for with you, with you. In 22, he says, I was a senseless animal with you. In other words, God comes to him even when he's in that place. Addicts know this place well. There's a, there's a, a moment for addicts where after you've indulged in the addiction, whatever it is, you come to. Maybe some of you know what I'm talking about. And you have this moment of, what have I been doing? What, what, what happened? What, what happened to the last hours or days? I was a senseless animal. But in the temple, Asaph has this r reminder, but you were with me in that. And in verse 23, there's a journey out. I am continually 
guided with you. He was a senseless animal. But now, God is leading him out. This is not a psalm about finding your own way out of envy. My goodness, I can't tell you how to do that. This is a celebration of God's merciful deliverance from it. And in verse 24, he sees where God is leading him. I will find honor and blessing with you. It's relationship. That's the freedom from envy that Asaph experiences. And so he finishes on this beautiful praise that's been turned into songs left and right. Whom do I have in heaven but you? What is better on earth but you? You. Friends, how can I prove this to you at the end of this? For many of you, the pursuit of other shelters has worn you down. And in this place, for a few minutes at least, you know the very things that you were chasing will not give you what you really want. They won't give you what you really need. You can say with Asaph that those other pursuits made your flesh and your heart grow weak. But each time you returned to the Lord, you found mercy and welcome. Some of you have that testimony, and I, I, I want you to share it with one another. But for others of you, this is kind of mere theory. You're still chasing after things. You're still, if you're really honest, looking for other shelters and keeping God on the side for insurance. And you're here. So I suspect that you want all of this to be true. Asaph's conviction is that you were designed for this relationship, not for that lifeless power. That in the hard, messy work of confession and worship, friendship and service and marriage and parenting, you are getting a foretaste of eternal joy. But it doesn't happen when you have power without abundance. It doesn't. In fact, it happens when you have responsibility that makes you need other people and God. At the end of all this, I'm drawn to... The words of an older pastor I was on a retreat several years ago uh, with a pastor who had served for many years in the, in the Pacific Northwest, and, um, and we found ourselves talking about our paychecks. Great pastor talk. I don't know. And, you know, we went to a lot of school, and our paychecks were feeling kind of small in that moment. And then he, he was about a year away from retirement. He's since retired. And he said, you know, just, just a couple months ago, my wife and I, we found ourselves kind of struggling with some of this, and, and we made a list of the wealthiest people that we knew. And, you know, the, a lot of their peers who were nearing retirement as well, and he looked at their lives and, and some themes that were emerging as he considered those families. And, and I'm not saying this happens for everyone who has a lot of money, but he said, his wife and he were crushed by the recognition that based on this little evidence, that wealth was more likely a curse than a blessing based on the things that had transpired in their lives, the things that they had, give, they had given themselves to. He entered the precincts of the temple and he found what was eternally good. 
But ultimately, friends, I can do no better to prove this to you than to point to the one who, though he was equal with God, did not regard equality with God as something to be grasped, but emptied himself, taking the very form of a servant, and, and, and not merely a servant, but, be, but he became obedient even unto death for us. The, the man who has experienced humanity as it was meant to be, the Son of God, did not experience it by having power with immunity, but by submitting himself even to the wicked authorities that Asaph was jealous of for their sake. On the very night that Jesus was betrayed, he took the bread, and when he had given thanks for it, he said, this is my body, which is given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And in the same way, after supper, he took the cup and said, This cup is the new covenant in my blood, poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. And every time we eat this bread or drink this cup, we proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. In other words, in other words we have a reminder of the way he grabbed hold of what truly lasts for us. Friends, Whatever power, whatever riches, whatever stuff you have, whatever shelter you have, you can't trade it for this. You can't can't get this by having that. The only way you come and really get what Jesus gives is empty-handed. Let's pray together.